Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Today, Kevin and I talk about the elements required to form a legal contract. This episode is brought to you by Northstrad Incorporated. Do you have experience as a contracting officer for an intelligence community agency like the National Reconnaissance Office? Do you have experience as a contracts manager for a government contractor, including proposal development and pricing strategies? Northstrat is looking for you. Northstrat Incorporated is a small, agile, and growing government contractor headquartered in Dulles, Virginia. Northstrat is looking for an experienced contracts manager to help shape the future of the company. You'll establish, organize, and manage the corporate contracting office while ensuring FAR and DFAR's compliance. Northstrat offers outstanding benefits, employee stock ownership, and many other great perks. Northstrat has a small company culture and takes a personal interest in every employee. If you or a friend would like to be part of a dynamic, growing company where you will directly affect the success of the organization, email your resume to recruiting at northstrat.com. That's N-O-R-T-H-S-T-R-A-T dot com. Northstrat is an equal opportunity employer. You must be a U.S. citizen and able to obtain and maintain a security clearance. Now let's get started and try to answer the question, is this a contract? How do you know when you actually have a contract? What if, what if it's just an agreement? It, is an agreement the same as a contract, Kevin? Definition of a contract is not different in the government market. However, we've seen the term contract applied to various types of acquisitions. And sometimes it's not actually a contract. It might just be an agreement. It might just be a discussion. Today, we're going to talk about the elements that make up a contract. And before we start, we're going to lay out a disclaimer here. We are not lawyers. Kevin and I are not lawyers. A contract is a legal instrument. We have a lot of experience with contracts. But whether or not a contract is binding is something that usually ends up in the courts if there's a dispute about that. So we're going to talk about the basics of what makes up a contract. What are the elements of a contract? Please don't send us a bunch of emails about the nuances of contract law and say that we got it all wrong. We're not going to try to get into every situation, and we're probably going to say some things that would not hold up strictly in court, but we're going to do our best to introduce the basic elements of a contract. Yeah, because the goal here is to show that communication impacts how effective the contract is, and if there isn't communication on what the contract is or whether it's a contract, then we start behind the curve. So that's why we're going through this. If you Google what are the elements of a contract – You'll get a whole lot of answers. There's either three or four or five, seven, seven, or even six, depending on where you look. Six and a half? No. We're going to talk about at least four or five of those and maybe ramble into a couple of the others. We'll hit the important ones first that are at least in every list of what are the elements of a contract. And each of these elements has a structure and a set of legal rules. Because it's government contracts, there might be some extra rules and specific rules, and we'll talk through each of those in future episodes. Let's stop and say thanks before we get any deeper. I want to say thanks to Jordan Day from Oracle's National Security Group. Uh, Jordan posted on Twitter that his team uses the podcast as part of their business development training. We're happy that you find the content useful. And thanks for letting us know how you use it, because it helps us learn how to help other listeners and customers use the Contracting Officer podcast content. Thanks, Jordan. We really appreciate it. All right, let's get started talking about the basic elements of a contract. The basic elements are offer, acceptance, consideration, 
Those three show up everywhere. Then you get into the more legally terms and that are a little more confusing to understand. Mutuality of obligation, capacity to contract, is there or is there not a written instrument? And there and there's more even more confusing ones farther down the line. Let's start with offer and acceptance, and we'll talk about these together. An offer is a promise to be bound to do something or or to stop doing something. So an offer sounds like, I will sell you this boat for $1,000. I promise to sell you this boat if you give me $1,000. An acceptance would be agreement to the exact terms of that offer. In other words, I will pay you $1,000 for that specific boat. That's acceptance. The important thing you just said is agreement to the exact terms of the offer. What is not acceptance of that offer is if you would have said, I promise to pay you $1,000 for your boat if you throw in the trailer. That is a counter offer. So we got this down. An offer is a promise to do something. Acceptance is a promise to do something in return. Once either of those promises is altered at all, it's a counteroffer, and any other term can be altered. And we're talking about this boat deal here, but, but you can imagine how this works in a government and industry negotiation as well. As the boat owner, if you say, oh, I'll give you $1,000 for your boat if you throw in the trailer, I can just reject it. I can say, nope, not doing that. Or I could counter back and say, for $1,200, I will sell you my boat and the trailer. Or I could introduce completely new variables. Once the original offer is not accepted exactly as is, any new variable can be introduced. I could say, Kevin, I will sell you the boat with the trailer for $1,000, but I won't deliver it to you for six months until the summer's over. You can have it in the fall once it gets all cold. When the boat will be parked on the trailer in your driveway. (laughs) And this offer and acceptance stuff is all over the farm. 338 times the term offer shows up just in the FAR. The FAR Part 2 definition is offer means a response to a solicitation that, if accepted, see there's the acceptance, would bind the offer to perform the resultant contract. In other words, the contract as is. Right. So whether you're submitting a bid or a proposal or a quote, if the government accepts it as is, you, you will have made a contract. As long as all these other elements are also true. (laughs) And that's why it's so important to know what's in your contract because when they accept it, they're accepting it as is. In government terms, industry's proposal is the offer. The government's signing of that document of the offer is acceptance of the offer, and that's how you make a contract. The government is in the business of looking for offers. (laughs) Industry is in the business of giving offers. That's, that's That's where offers play into this. And then acceptance of the offers is how we end up with contracts. That's the basic part. Let's move on to the third element, consideration. And this is where it gets really confusing. Offer and acceptance are pretty easy to understand. Consideration is not so easy. Consideration is a benefit that can be bargained for by each party. It's the essential reason for a party entering into a contract. Another way to say that is consideration is the price paid for the promise. It's the benefit that each party promises to provide when they create this contract. Usually it's money. 
but anything of value can be promised by one party to another. This is pre-transaction. This is about what you're going to do. A contract is an agreement to do something in the future. So consideration is something is that's why we say the price paid for the promise. That's where that language comes from. Is it's you're promising to do something. So the consideration is the value of that promise to the other party. Usually, when you're thinking of what's going to be exchanged, you're promising to exchange money or something of value for money. But it can be anything of value, and of value is determined by by the parties. For example, if we're talking money, Kevin, if you promise to sell me your car for $5,000, and I promise to give you $5,000 for your car, we're both making a promise where we're agreeing to exchange something in the future. But it doesn't have to be just money. We could agree for this car for $5,000 deal, and you could throw in, I want to deliver my car a month later. In exchange for waiting a month, I'll give you this set of spare tires that I have. So at this point, you were promising to give me extra features, the, the tires, and I'm promising to wait. So what is, what is being exchanged of value? That month is my consideration. That, that month is the time that I'm willing to exchange to get spare tires. And this is where the thinking part of the job kicks in because the value are spare tires worth a month of my time. That's a judgment call. That's a thinking part of the job. So this is not binary. The offer and acceptance, those are pretty binary. Fair could be different. It's not just a matter of looking on Kelly Blue Book and to see the value of the car is $4,718. It's a matter of what is it worth to the buyer? What is it worth to the seller? That's where the consideration, that's why this becomes a thinking part of the job. I want to give one last example of consideration and not consideration before we move on. If I say, I will give you this boat, we're back to the boat, that is not a contract with consideration because if I don't give you the boat, you can't take me to court and say, oh, Paul, you promised to give me the boat. If, on the other hand, I said, I will give you this boat in exchange for your three magic beans, <laughs> and you say, I will give you three magic beans in exchange for the boat, and you give me the beans. If I don't give you the boat, then you can take me to court because we exchanged promises. You held up your end of the promise. Now you're beanless, and I still have a boat. For the record, I love the fact that you got a story about three magic beans into a government contracting podcast. That's pretty cool. And this concept of consideration we will cover in a future episode that will be all about consideration because it's a really complex topic. I think it will probably end up being three or four episodes by the time we uh, dig into all the weird details in consideration. Consideration takes up six pages of results on the far site. You go to the <laughs> and actually type in consideration, six pages. It comes up most during negotiations, but it's also an equalizer. And by equalizer, we mean if the government agrees to take consideration in exchange for a, a problem that occurred during contract performance, the government can't go back later and ding the contractor for that problem because – their sins have been absolved by the exchange of consideration. As a government, we only get one bite at the apple. Uh, we had a, a aircraft that was delivering late. We negotiated a $5,000 per day penalty for the aircraft being late. And it ended up being, I think it ended up being like 45 days late. 
So we can't go back during the CPARs and say, hey, they delivered 45 days late because we got consideration for that to the tune of 45 times $5,000, which we then used to get upgrades or whatever. <laughs> which you then traded for something else of value later, more consideration exactly. at work. The next element of a contract, mutuality of obligation. That sounds like a legal term. <laughs> yeah, this again, we're, we're into the, the weeds here, things that are a little harder to understand. This sounds easy, but it's not. Mutuality of obligation means both parties must agree to be bound or neither is bound. A contract where only one party has an obligation is not actually a contract. I was just talking about this with the boat situation. If I just say, I'll give you the boat, you can't enforce that. If you give me the beans, then you can enforce it. In government contracting terms, a contractor can't have a victory party until they have a signed copy of the contract because you don't have a bound you don't have the government agreeing to be bound until you have a signed document. Right. If the government sends you the contract and says, "Here contractor, sign this." You sign it, send it back to the government, then you have your big party. There's still a chance that they may not sign it. They may have intended to, but what if the funding got pulled at the last minute? You've signed it, but you don't actually have a contract until they've signed it, creating that mutuality. The next element of a contract that we'll talk about today is the legal capacity to contract. We're not talking about the authority to contract. That is, as we always say, a whole nother podcast. It's a whole other can of beans. Nice. Back to the beans. Legal capacity to contract means that each party must have the capability to understand the parameters of the contract, the rights that, that the contract is giving to each party, the meaning of all the terms, the future effects of what's going to happen if things go wrong in the contract. Most contracts are kind of hard to understand. So who is not considered to have legal capacity to contract? If you're a minor, if you're under the age of 18, if you have mental incapacitation, which is mental illness or shortcomings, uh, psychological issues, it, this usually ends up in the courts because it's usually very difficult to discern whether or not somebody has mental incapacitation. And then whether you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol. These are things that influence your ability to have a legal capacity to contract. Did you know what you were signing? It's not an excuse, but if you were drunk, you may not understand what you were signing. That's why in a lot of places, you're not allowed to get a tattoo if you're drunk. It's a really, really bizarre yet applicable example. <laughs> One of the pieces here is this understand the parameters of the contract is the understanding the meaning of the terms. And you can imagine it's a government contract. So the understanding the meaning of those terms, even when we're stone cold sober, <laughs> isn't always easy. <laughs> so th there's a lot of nuance to this. This is why the courts can be full based on cases with this legal capacity to contract. Because understanding all the nuances and meaning of the terms and future effects of a federal government contract can be a tall order. But you still can't say, wow, that was really complicated. I didn't understand what I was signing up to. You have to be able to prove somehow that you're incapacitated or drunk or a minor. And, and that's why rule number one is read the RFP and rule number two is read the contract. <laughs> All right. I'm going to pretend I'm you, Kevin, just for a moment and throw in a fun fact. You love fun facts. I do. A contract for illegal activities is not an enforceable legal contract. So if you strike a deal to buy some Coke and you hand off $2 million to the local cartel and they stiff you and take your $2 million and don't give you any cocaine, 
you can't take them to court to try to enforce that deal because selling drugs is illegal. Does that make sense? That, that contract maybe worked out in different terms. But yes, that's, <laughs> that's, where yeah, the that, hit, that's where the hitman comes in. And, but the basic principle is if it's an illegal activity, it's not a legal contract. Right. And a drug deal is an extreme example. There are lots of obscure legality things that could void what you think is a contract. Okay, we failed to talk about the time zone application here. This isn't really an acquisition time zone or an execution time zone thing. This is an overarching concept. What what makes up a contract? Do I have a legal contract or not? We'll get into the time zone application when we dig into each of the elements in future podcasts. And for some foreshadowing, for example, market research zone is not a contract. If you were at a conference and the government person says, hey, yeah, we'll probably buy that from you guys. That's not a contract. <laughs> I've had this conversation with a, with a company and say, but they told me they were going to buy it. Like, that person didn't have the capacity to contract. They didn't have authority. It was a market research zone, et cetera. So this is why we're going to talk about each one of these in context of the time zones later. What we're not going to do in this episode is dig into the usual why this is important to the government and why specifically this is important to industry. We'll save that for the podcast about the individual elements. So we're going to wrap it up right here. The purpose of a contract is to connect someone who needs something with someone who can deliver that something, right? So we start with that. And the contract is the basis for the promise to deliver something to the buyer. And that's why understanding these elements of the contract is so important because you have to make sure you actually have a contract to deliver for said customer. Okay, let the hate mail begin as everyone tells us how we screwed up all these very complicated topics by leaving out something or saying something slightly wrong. Can't wait to see my inbox tomorrow. All right, Kevin, I'll talk to you later. All right, see you, Paul. See you on the next one. Okay, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. In all seriousness, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, send me an email at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. Yeah.